Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and this is a show where we discuss everything that happened in the Linux and open source world over the past week. So this time we have some VS Code and Microsoft Edge related problems. The first one just dropped an older LTS without notifying anyone, and the second one has been caught red-handed just siphoning off all the data from Chrome without any user consent. We also have some details about Fedora 40, which might reconsider dropping X11 in its KDE spin. We have Thunderbird planning to add native exchange support. We have some big improvements to Wine on Wayland and also to Wayland in general. We have some more collateral damage done by Red Hat's licensing changes and a bunch of other things. So as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, All the links are in the show notes. If you want to support this podcast, all the links are in the show notes as well. And if you become a Patreon member or a YouTube member on the YouTube channel, you'll also get a daily show for Linux and open source news, which will keep you up to date every day from Monday to Friday. So now let's get into it. So, first, VS Code, Microsoft's IDE, used on Windows, Linux, macOS by a lot of developers. Well, they decided to drop support for Ubuntu 18.04 LTS, because the new update to VS Code now requires a newer version of glibc than the one that the old Ubuntu LTS provides. And if you don't know, this is a package you cannot simply just update out of the blue on your system because virtually everything relies on it. And so if you decide to just force an update to that package using a package made for another distro, chances are you're going to break your whole system. So it is an unavoidable change unless you decide to update your system or to stick to an older version of VS Code. And this is a big problem because a lot of people are still running some Ubuntu 18.04 servers. And so they cannot access them anymore remotely when using the latest version of VS Code. And upping the requirements for your application is absolutely normal. Ubuntu 18.04 is now almost six years old. Uh, There are already two LTS that have been released since then. There's 20.04, 22.04 and 24.04 is just a few months away. So Ubuntu 18.04 is a very old system, but it is still supported by Ubuntu, and Microsoft knows that this is an OS that is used everywhere on a lot of servers because, well, it is still supported. And it looks like Microsoft just did not communicate on this change at all. So no one could prepare. You just woke up one morning, booted up VS Code, it automatically updated because that's what it does on most user systems, and then you just could not access some of your remote servers that used Ubuntu 18.04. Obviously, like I said, you can still downgrade to an older version of VS Code, or more drastically, you can update your server to move to 20.04 or something else. But this is not an ideal situation. And of course, it all comes back to why are you using Microsoft products? Uh, You all know that Microsoft is just a terrible company for their users and their customers. They add telemetry everywhere. They are known to break compatibility with a bunch of things, depreciate things, do things without notifying anyone. They are known to abuse their dominant position at every turn. So by using VS Code, you're kind of inviting this stuff on yourself. Now, that's not to say that Microsoft did a good job here. They could have handled this much 
much better. They could have notified people in advance. They could have just waited for Ubuntu 18.04 to not be supported anymore and just delayed their update until then. You're not going to tell me that they have nothing else to add to the app that would absolutely require a new version of glibc. You are a development tool, VS Code. Uh, you are interacting with a lot of older systems and you breaking compatibility like this is a disaster. But also when you use Microsoft products, like what do you expect? Of course it's gonna break. And still on that topic of Microsoft products, well, they have been caught red-handed as Edge seems to use Chrome's browsing history without any consent from the user. Now this apparently only applies to Windows because on Linux it doesn't look like Edge can actually access any of this, but that's not been confirmed. The reports are mostly coming from Windows users or exclusively from Windows users, but what seems to be happening is that even if you never opened Edge voluntarily, you never logged into it voluntarily, you never imported any data into it, apparently Edge sometimes just opens out of the blue because it's Windows and Microsoft and it just doesn't respect your default browser choice. It will still open some links using Microsoft Edge. And when it opens, it gets all your Chrome tabs inside of it so it's basically restoring your browsing session from Chrome inside of a browser you never used and you never authorized to access any of this. And apparently The Verge noticed it first and they only noticed that they were using Edge because none of the websites they usually access uh, had them logged into them. Uh, they, they had all their Chrome tabs inside of Edge and so they resumed their working session as usual, not really noticing the different interface. And then when they tried to access something, they were like, hey, why am, not, why am I not logged in? And then they noticed that they were using Edge. Uh, there's technically a setting to handle this in Edge to let it access the data, but it is disabled by default, and in The Verge's case, it was disabled. And a lot of other users are also reporting the exact same behavior on their devices. Technically, there should be a prompt opening inside of Microsoft Edge asking you to allow this behavior or to refuse it. But apparently this prompt crashes as soon as it opens and when it disappears, Microsoft seems to take that as user consent and starts using Chrome's browsing data even though the setting is not turned on in Edge. And all of this data technically is shared locally. But if you use a Microsoft account on Windows, Microsoft Edge is logged in automatically and generally has all the settings to sync this data with your Microsoft account. Meaning that once it has imported all this data inside of Edge, it will in a lot of cases just sync it with the cloud without asking anybody about whether they should do it or not. And not using a Microsoft account on Windows is getting increasingly difficult. If you want to not have the obligation to create or log into a Microsoft account when you install Windows, you have to actually fiddle with the registry or make sure that none of your uh, Wi-Fi or Ethernet hardware is detected. So virtually everyone will have a Microsoft account and if you didn't read all the prompts when installing Windows, you're probably allowing Edge to sync everything to the cloud. So in general, it means that Microsoft is taking users' browsing data and uploading it to their servers in a lot of cases without any user input, which is kind of data theft if you think about it. So yeah, Windows is a wonderful system. And I am still personally baffled as to why Microsoft is allowed to keep shipping Edge as the default browser in their OS 
and to keep reverting the default browsing settings for certain links that you open inside of Windows. I do remember that at some point, Microsoft was forced to add a browser ballot choice screen inside of Windows when you first booted it. Maybe it was just in France or the EU, but they had to add that because just shipping a browser that they control on the system that is the most used system on any computer in the planet is just an abuse of your dominant position. I don't know why that changed when they moved to Edge, because yes, Edge is not the dominant browser, but Windows still is the dominant system. So packaging that browser as the default option and reverting user preferences is definitely still abuse of dominant position. So I don't know why this browser ballot thing isn't a thing and why they are not getting fined or at least asked to change this. It's really weird, especially when you know that Microsoft is always doing stuff like this to try and get more of your data. It's just, it's just a terrible company with that VS Code change, with that Edge change. Just don't use Microsoft products if you can help it. It's terrible. And since we're talking about privacy and user data, it's time to talk about this episode's sponsor. So this episode is sponsored by Square X. And if you like to browse the internet privately or securely, you really should give Square X a shot. Uh, they can be installed either as a Chrome browser extension for Chrome or any Chromium-based browser, or it can be used as a web app in other non-Chromium-based browsers. And what it does is giving you access to a suite of disposable, like, burner tools that open everything in the cloud instead of opening things locally, so your system and your data are never at risk. So for example, you get a burner browser. It will block ads and trackers. It will give you access to any geographical location you would like, or even multiple different locations in different tabs. And everything is simply deleted when you close the window. So it's it works sort of like a VPN, a tracker blocker, and incognito mode all combined in just one click. You get all of these features at the same time. And so it's super useful if you want to access various websites that you don't completely trust or to open links that you're not certain about. And it doesn't risk the safety of your actual day-to-day -day browser or data because the whole browsing session that you open runs in the cloud. Only that cloud session could be at risk and it's reset every time you open a new browser in Square X. So you're basically running a browser in a browser through a remote desktop protocol from a session that is purged once you're done with it. Now on top of this burner browser, you also get a burner file viewer. You can open files and view documents from senders you don't trust yet without risking your system. Nothing you open in Square X can access your real physical computer. So it's also very useful if you want to assess a potential threat, if you want to do research, or if you want to open a file from a random USB device. And on top of that, you get a disposable email address that you can use to create accounts and subscribe to various newsletters without giving away your real address and identity. So you're protecting yourself from spam or phishing attacks, and the moment you decide you don't want any of these emails, you can simply regenerate a new email address to keep using that, and the previous one will be deleted and replaced. The whole model behind Square X lets you get away from the classic antivirus detection model. Uh, this thing generally just classifies files as either safe or malicious before you open the files. Uh, with Square X, you avoid false positives or false negatives. You don't have to disable the protections that your system has in place just to open one file. And you can just run and open whatever you want without worrying about the physical device itself. 
And same goes for physical networks. You can browse everything in a safe sandbox and not worry about being tracked or attacked because everything that you look at is secured in a disposable browsing session. And they also have a few other smart integrations that help you be just more confident online. So if you want to try out SquareX, I left a link in the show notes uh, to their web app and their Chrome extension, so you can give it a shot. It's all free, so yeah, just try it out and uh, tell me what you feel about it. Now, back to our Linux and open source news. And it looks like Fedora 40's decision to drop X11 entirely from their KDE spin isn't set in stone just yet. Uh, this decision had been previously voted on by the steering committee for this KDE spin, but now there are some new review requests being posted to reintroduce a package that would support X11 for Kwin, the window manager, and for the Plasma workstation, well, no, workspace, not workstation, for Plasma workstation. So basically two packages that would add X11 support back into the distro. The KDE team for Fedora didn't accept this outright. They're proposing instead to have these packages hosted in a copper repo for people who really, really want to use X11 and not Wayland. But this is not exactly the same because first you would have to add that copper repo manually. And second, it's a copper repo, so it's not really as official or well-supported as what you would find in the official Fedora repos. On top of that, Fedora 40 confirmed that they would use the latest toolchain with the latest GCC compiler and glibc, and that they would move to open JDK 21 to replace version 17 that they used previously to handle Java. And there's also another change. Uh, the network install images will no longer be constrained to a 700 megabytes limit, which was set in place to let these network images be burned onto CDs. But since no one uses CDs anymore and the firmware that they have to ship in these network images to actually make stuff work and boot on any computer, since all of this is too big, they have allowed themselves to exceed that 700 megabytes limit, meaning that you won't be able to burn these images to a CD anymore. Uh, you can still burn them to a DVD or use a USB stick, but if you were limited to a CD drive, then you're out of luck and that's just not gonna work anymore. I don't think that's such a big issue because if your computer only has access to a CD drive, Fedora is probably not the best distro to run on that system because it means your computer is probably very old and Fedora generally has, uh, well, hardware support that is more meant for newer devices. So there are probably other choices for you out there. Now, personally, in the X11 space, I hope Fedora 40 will not back down on dropping X11. The copper repo solution seems perfect to me. Like if you really want X11, yes, you're using a third-party repo with those packages inside. That's it, it's still gonna work. But the message would stay very clear. It's Wayland is what we want to push. Plasma 6 wants people to use Wayland, that's their default session. And so we're gonna do that because we want to ship the vanilla experience for KDE. Allowing people to go back to X11 is just a step backwards, and Fedora has always been that distro that pushes things forward. If you want to use X11, there are plenty of distros that will keep shipping it for the foreseeable future. Fedora is where the latest thing happens, so I hope they don't back down. I hope they go with the copper repo route, uh, or just not even provide it at all and let third parties package that for them. 
But uh, yeah, it, it's it's kind of Fedora's ethos and goal to push the latest thing and to respect the wishes of upstream, which is in this case, use Wayland. So yeah, let's hope they don't back down. At least that's what I'm hoping for. Now, there are some good news for Thunderbird users. Uh, apparently, they're going to implement a Rust crate in the app, uh, this being a reusable Rust package that you can embed inside of another application, and they're going to be able to add native support for Exchange, meaning that you will be able to use Thunderbird more easily in various companies that decided to use Microsoft products. And I know it's ironic, I just criticized Microsoft and told people not to use their stuff, but if you work at a company and you don't want to use Outlook, but you prefer using some open source software, having Exchange support in Thunderbird would be very cool. So, as I said, it's all done using a Rust crate, and this will be open sourced as soon as it's finished and fully working. Now, on top of that, Thunderbird also announced a bunch of changes that will come to the application. They are not just stopping with their latest update to the Supernova 115 release. Uh, they're gonna keep improving on the UX and the backend. And so first, there's a revamp of the cards view for the email module, which should not only look better with better alignment, like user avatars and stuff like that, but it will also be more legible at the same time, especially for conversation views. This is almost done, and so it should land relatively soon in Thunderbird. And they're also revamping the whole message database, which is the whole backend that stores indexes, allows you to find messages, and links them into conversations. This thing was using a very old framework that is a big limitation to what they can accomplish nowadays, and so they're going to completely rewrite this. It's gonna take a while to make that change, but in the end, it should result in more flexibility for Thunderbird to actually update the app and make things work better. It's going to handle threaded conversations much better as well. And it's also probably going to give some performance improvements uh, for giant databases of messages. So that's probably a very good move. It's really good to see Thunderbird evolving again, whether it's in the UX department or the backend. Their team is doing a fantastic job, and some people were saying, oh, they didn't do anything since they released their latest update. Well, hey, there you go. They've been working, they just didn't publish any new features, but that's because those are big features that take a while to be published. So yeah, uh, great job, Thunderbird team, and I cannot wait to use that revamped cards view because in mockups, it looks absolutely fantastic. Now, we have some more news about Wayland and Wine on Wayland. So let's talk about Wine first. Uh, they have improved their support for Wayland again, this time with another set of features, notably Display Mode Change Emulation. This thing will let games run full screen on Wayland without using the native display's resolution, which is absolutely important because sometimes you want to run an app full screen to get the best performance possible, but also if you run that at the native display resolution, the game might stutter if your computer is not able to do that. And that's why we have DLSS and FSR. You open the game full screen, you run it at a, not the native resolution of the monitor, something lower than that to save some performance, but for things to not display as a blurry mess or very pixelated, you use DLSS or FSR to upscale that, and so it kind of looks like you're playing at the native resolution, but you're not, and so you have better performance. So this is an important feature to be added. This merge request will probably land in Wine 9.2, and it will obviously be part of the Wine 10 release that will be released next year. I personally hope Valve will not wait for the stable Wine 10 release to implement all these changes and all this Wayland support, 
I would like them to at least offer a command line argument to use the Wayland driver instead of X Wayland, because this would also really bolster the testing numbers for the new Wayland backend. And it would let people that use Wayland, and there are going to be a lot more of them as more and more distributions drop X11, it would let people just use that Wayland backend either as an experimental thing or as a daily driver if it works well enough. And on top of that, the developers for the Wayland backend for Wine plan to add a bunch more features in 2024, including support for window minimizing, because right now you can maximize, move, resize windows, but not minimize them using the Wayland backend. They want to add better OpenGL support. Vulkan support is already great using DXVK and stuff like that, but some apps still rely on OpenGL, and for now it's not well supported with the Wayland backend, so they want to improve that. Uh, they want to have handling of the clipboard, which is obviously sometimes important, even for games, uh, support for drag and drop as well, and a few other things. So Collabora, they are the ones behind uh, all this work on the Wayland backend for Wine, they have a blog post that lists everything that they accomplished in 2023 and what they want to work on in 2024. And honestly, when you look at the work they've done in a year, it's huge. They implemented basic window management, they implemented software rendering, mouse support and mouse look, so you can actually look around in FPS games using your mouse. They have keyboard support, including handling of specific key mappings and keyboard layouts. They have support for Vulkan through the Wine implementation of Direct3D or through DXVK. And they have basic support for high DPI. And other things that they would like to add at some point in the future is support for the upcoming HDR protocol for Wayland, which is not finalized, so they're probably going to wait until that protocol is fully defined to implement it in, in their backend, plus auto DPI detection to actually render Wine as a high DPI or Wine apps uh, using the high DPI settings or the fractional scaling settings, and they want to implement fractional scaling support or, or per monitor handling at least of scaling, whether it's fractional scaling or, or, or integer scaling, which is really cool. So it's amazing progress there on Wine and its Wayland backend. As always, Collabora delivers insanely good work in a very timely fashion. So props to them for helping make the Linux desktop a much better place and lifting the remaining barriers to Wayland adoption. And still on Wayland, while some Wayland protocols generate a lot of discussion, like the one I talked about last week, uh, which like created a bunch of issues just to change a window icon, uh, well, some are already agreed upon. And, well, I say that, but this specific protocol that I'm going to talk about has been in discussion for nine months, uh, so it's not exactly fast. But still, the top-level drag protocol has now been merged into the wider Wayland protocols, and this should solve a bunch of issues with stuff like dragging tabs out of a window and spawning a new window out of that, or reattaching a tab into a file manager window or a web browser window. And it's also going to handle various uh, dockable windows as well. If you ever use the KD app, you know that they have oftentimes a bunch of little dock panels that you can move around inside of the app or just spawn as a new window, as a little pop-up outside of the window. And apparently on Wayland, this support hasn't been great. And so this top-level drag protocol will fix all of this. It's already implemented in Kwin, in Chrome, and the Qt framework. At least they already implement some version of this. But this protocol should make things much more streamlined and unified across all desktops and toolkits. So it's really good to have. I will personally admit, I never had an issue 
dragging a tab out of a browser window or a file manager under Wayland, whether it was on GNOME or on KDE, but apparently there were some apps that didn't support that well, or maybe it was just implemented in a sort of hacky way, but now the protocol is there to do it properly. Not sure, uh, but still, it's progress, so it's good. Now, it looks like Red Hat's recent moves to limit who can access their source code is having some repercussions on their wider ecosystem now, especially for CentOS Stream. Certain special interest groups, or SIGs, are reporting a bunch of issues with CentOS. And if you don't know, SIGs are basically like Ubuntu PPAs, uh, except they're not just a PPA to add an app or a package, they're focusing on, hey, what could we add to change a specific use case or to improve a specific use case of CentOS or Red Hat or a Red Hat-based Red Hat distro. And so they're providing additional repos with components that have been tweaked and modified to better handle a specific use case. Now, for example, there's the Kmods SIG. Uh, this one is focused on building additional packages that contain kernel modules to improve hardware support in CentOS Stream, which is one of Red Hat's distributions and they cannot legally produce these packages anymore due to the licensing changes that Red Hat applied to their own source code. And thus their packages are no longer updated. Now they're apparently working with Red Hat to try and solve the issue, but for now they're left behind. There's also the Hyperscale Special Interest Group, which is meant to enhance CentOS Stream for big infrastructures like those used by Meta, by Facebook, by Twitter, and other big companies. This SIG also encounters problems, and they even decided to now build their packages using Fedora's kernels instead of using the CentOS and Red Hat kernels because they cannot legally redistribute the source code from Red Hat anymore. So yeah, it is absolute proof that Red Hat's moves are adding limitations on who can redistribute their GPL source code or modify it, which goes against the GPL itself. When you use the GPL license, you're granting anyone the ability to redistribute the code. You, you are not allowed to put additional limits onto what the license already allows. And that's exactly what Red Hat is doing there. I hope these changes to their licensing terms will be deemed in breach of the GPL, but in any case, these moves are even hurting Red Hat's own ecosystem. SIGs are an important part of CentOS, and the reason why a lot of companies or people use that to make it more suited for their specific purposes. If these SIGs are not able to function as well as they should, or not at all, it severely limits the appeal of CentOS Stream. And who knows, maybe that's the point entirely. So people just move to Red Hat Enterprise Linux instead. Maybe that's what they want. Maybe they're considering CentOS Stream as some kind of Red Hat clone and they don't want companies to use them, only individuals. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, they're hurting themselves now, which is pretty weird and I still don't understand that move, honestly. Now let's talk about Purism. Uh, you probably know about them, they're the company behind the Librem 5, they created the PureOS distro, they created the Fosh shell, like the first mobile implementation of GNOME, even though GNOME wants to develop their own uh, GNOME mobile shell, they were the first one to do that. Uh, they also have their own line of computers, and they are also a big GTK contributor. And so they decided they want to go public and to trade some shares, and they decided that they should be valued at $75 million, and it might not seem like much, but they reported a minus $470,000 of net income for 2022. 
Now, this is mostly due to some pre-existing debt. Uh, they have up to almost $22 million in debt, but it looks like if you only look at their sales, they would be profitable. Now, their basis for valuating themselves at $75 million is by comparing their mobile efforts for pure OS to what early Android was before it was bought by Google, and it was valued at 10 times its revenue. And they also compare themselves uh, with the situation where IBM was, was buying Red Hat for 10 times their revenue. So PureOS also decided that they went for an almost 10 times multiplier to land on a 75 million valuation. This is the norm. Uh, when you go public, generally you multiply your value, your actual income by 10, and that's what you're valuing your company. But generally, you also take into account at least the short-term debt, uh, which is very high for purism. It's not $22 million. They have some long-term debt with that as well. But I think they have like $6 million uh, in just short-term debt. Because if you don't take that into account, it means that the company could just go public and use that money to pay off the debt they have, and then they don't have as much money to invest, which is just completely nullifying the predictions that investors have when buying shares for a company. So I think it's interesting to see a mostly open source company going public, uh, especially a relatively small one like Purism, but it really looks insane to me to want to be valued at $75 million. Uh, because comparing yourself with Android when it was bought or when Red Hat was bought, the market around these two companies was not the same at all as the current environment Purism exists in. The smartphone market is now completely saturated and cornered. Mobile Linux efforts from Purism will have to work way harder than Android ever did to carve some market share. And also when Red Hat was bought, it was already very profitable and in a much stronger position than Purism ever was or is in. But at the same time, if you only think about how can we improve the Linux desktop, an influx of cash due to this IPO might mean that mobile Linux could get a sizable boost. So maybe it's a boon if it works out, although I am always relatively wary of open source and Linux focused companies going public because once investors decide where you go, they generally don't decide to go in the direction of the users or of the contributions to the various ecosystem. They go where the money is. And open source is not the most profitable area. So always wary of these things, personally. Now, this week, we got the release of Plasma 6 second release candidate. As we head into February, and the release is now less than a month away. And speaking of that, the KDE team actually sent me a preview of the release notes page. I cannot share it with you, it's not final, they asked me to not share it yet, it will be published when Plasma 6 releases, but they have a list of every major feature in there. And there are 13,000 characters without including the spaces in this page. If you don't know what that means, it's bigger than my average video scripts. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be a big, big release. Now, as I say, I cannot share the link to the page with you because it's not final and Plasma 6 is not released yet, but it is packed. And among the main features, there's support for HDR. There's a new overview effect that combines the old overview and the desktop grid into one single interface that really looks like the GNOME activities. Uh, they have floating panels by default and a brand new interface to configure how the panel fits in the screen, where it's floating at, and stuff like that. It's way more visual, it's really beautiful. 
they have double click by default to open files and folders. Although you can still move to single click if you prefer. There's Wayland by default, tap to click with a touchpad by default. The Breeze team has been revamped a little bit. It removes a bunch of the colored borders that you see everywhere in apps to have a more streamlined look. So elements of, the, of an app won't seem that separated from one another with additional borders. Uh, they have reorganized settings. They have the ability to set a sound theme and change it. They have the desktop cube back. They have custom ordering of search results in KRunner, plus big improvements to the Wayland support since it's the default now. There are big improvements to Plasma Mobile as well, to the contact suite and to most main KDE apps, whether they are shipped uh, by the default KDE desktop or part of the KDE gear compilation. So obviously, I will have a complete video covering Plasma 6 for its final release at the end of the month, and I will probably start working on that script and that video uh, next week, because it's going to be a huge one, and I don't want to have to do that video in two or three days like I usually do, uh, which would be probably impossible to test things out uh, well enough for one such video. So yeah, packed release, a bunch of cool new features. Uh, I think I'm gonna love using Plasma 6, and I hope the distro I use, Tuxedo OS, will actually update that. They do use some of KD Neon's packages to ship updates to the experience, but Plasma 6 being a big, big one, I don't know if they're gonna do it in a timely manner or not. I really hope so, but I'll ask them. And let's finish this with the gaming news. Uh, so first, Holo ISO, as you knew it, is now dead. It is replaced by an immutable distribution. Now, if you didn't know about it, Holo ISO is the non-official SteamOS rebuild. Uh, they're using all the open source code that Valve shares for SteamOS, and they add the Steam client, which is proprietary, on top of it, and they ship that as a, like, it's basically exactly what SteamOS is. But they encountered a bunch of issues over the lifetime of the distro, which resulted in very few updates over the past year. And now they decided to archive that repo and replace that distro with an immutable distribution. Now, the old build that I personally currently run on my own sort of SteamOS console will no longer receive any updates. And users are encouraged to move to the new immutable distro, but there is no direct upgrade path yet. The developers want to add that in the future, but they don't know when or if it will happen. And so there is now a new GitHub repo so you can download the new build. It's interesting, I think having an immutable distro, I, I was pretty sure that SteamOS was already what we call an immutable distro, they shipped OS well, image-based uh, updates, but maybe Holo ISO also shifted that to the, to the desktop mode as well. I don't know, not sure how well this thing will work, and so I'm going to have to look for another distro that is just gaming-focused for my console at some point. For now, it works, it still receives like the Steam client and SteamOS regular updates, uh, so I just, I'm just not getting updates to the desktop mode, which I never use, so it's not a big problem, but at some point it might just break or not be supported, so I'm gonna have to replace it. I will wait a few months to see if there's an upgrade pass to the immutable version, in which case I'll do that, and if not, I will use something else. Uh, Chimera OS proved unusable in the past because it just didn't support my Xbox controller where every other distro always supported it out of the box, so I don't want to deal with fixing that issue. And I don't want a full desktop distro like Nobara or Bazite, uh, because I will never use the desktop mode of these distros on this device. Uh, maybe there would still be decent options if I can just like slot them in and put the full screen Steam interface at boot, but I would rather have something fully gaming focused, which like doesn't even bother with the desktop mode. 
But also, Valve, where is the official SteamOS ISO? Release that, come on, like, it's been two years since you released the Steam Deck, where is the official SteamOS 3 ISO? You still have the old one available online and the Steam Deck restore image, you said you were going to do this, so yeah, come on, it fit my needs perfectly, just release it, please. Now, the Mesa drivers also got a major release last week, version 24, and in this one you can expect a lot of improvements for AMD GPUs. Notably, in the ray tracing uh, space, it's gonna be much, much faster uh, on these GPUs, so that's gonna be a boon to people who want some pretty lights in their games, and also their support for a lot of new Vulkan extensions, which will obviously improve performance and make newer games uh, run better. The same goes for Intel's Vulkan driver, it also gains support for a bunch of these extensions, and Mesa 24 also brings a lot of performance improvements to NVK, the open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA GPUs, and it also packs in the new shader compiler for these drivers to go with it. The Azahi graphics drivers also got OpenGL 3.3 support, meaning that using Linux on an Apple Silicon Mac should feel a lot better. And on top of that, there is an open-source Vulkan driver for PowerVR graphics, which is what you will find in a lot of ARM-based devices, but this driver will not have an OpenGL variant, uh, this will all be handled with Zinc, which basically brings OpenGL support uh, by using Vulkan. So it's all solid updates, and it's released early enough in the year that it's probably also going to be packed into Ubuntu 24.04 and Fedora 40, meaning that people will get access to the full stack, the full open source NVIDIA stack. You will get the Linux kernel 6.7 with the latest Nouveau drivers with GSP firmware support, and you will get NVK. So if you have a supported GPU, supported by NVK I mean, uh, you might be able to just use the open source drivers for your NVIDIA GPU, in these future releases of very popular distros, which is very cool. We'll probably see a bunch of benchmarks when that happens, and I'll be there for it, and if there aren't any benchmarks, I'll probably just make my own, because I think it's a very interesting topic. And to finish this episode, it looks like the Linux market share on Steam is sort of reaching a plateau. It dropped slightly to 1.95% at the end of January, down from 1.97% at the end of December. It is not a significant drop, but it is no longer growing. Now, macOS fell as well, down to 1.54%, and Windows grew and picked up all these uh, all these uh, downward trends, and it's still at more than 95%, I think it's like 96.5% or something. It's still the dominant platform for PC gaming. And interestingly, Holo ISO and SteamOS are still driving Linux's market share. It's 42.12% of Linux systems right now, which also means, well, use of Linux systems like that participated in the Steam survey. Uh, and it also means that AMD represents 70% of the CPUs used to game on Linux, where on Windows, it's only 35%. Uh, which, yeah, it's interesting stuff. It shows that Linux's gaming efforts are propped up by the Steam Deck. If the Steam Deck keeps selling, we'll stay at about the same market share. If the Steam Deck sells more, we'll grow. If the Steam Deck peters out and die, we will go back to being completely irrelevant. And it's not a very comfortable position to be in. We sort of depend on one single company and one single product line to even remotely exist in the gaming scene. So I hope Valve recognizes that their efforts are tied to the success of Linux, 
and that they start making partnerships to bring SteamOS to more and more devices with more and more companies, which in turn might also invest in SteamOS or in Proton, which means that more people will have, uh, let's say, an interest in making sure that Linux succeeds on the gaming scene. I hope this will happen soon, because being completely dependent on Valve and Proton and SteamOS is, is not a solid position to be in. The moment Valve decides, you know what, we spent enough money on this, people are just not picking up the Steam Deck as much as we wanted to, it's not self-sufficient in terms of funding, we cannot lose money like this on this specific area, so we're gonna can the project. When that happens, we're done. We're done. Like, Linux stops, it completely stops existing as a viable gaming platform, and that would suck. So I hope more people, well, more companies and more hardware manufacturers will join in uh, in this nice little adventure and we're no longer dependent on one single company to exist in the gaming space. And when I say exist, we're still under 2%. So this will conclude this episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, you have all the links in the show notes. If you want to support the show to keep it going, there are plenty of links for that in the show notes as well. And if you want to check out our sponsor, Square X, there's also the link in the show notes as well. So thank you all for listening. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, either through Patreon, PayPal, LibraPay, or YouTube memberships. And I guess you will hear me in the next one next week.